Corey Brothers Mouthpieces Podcast. All right, we're here. The hospital radio of saxophone podcasting. Corey Brothers Mouthpieces Podcasting. Episode one. Episode one. Welcome, everyone. I'm Paul Corey. I'm Jim Corey. Together we are Corey Brothers Mouthpieces. We make handmade saxophone mouthpieces in our little workshop. And here we are doing our first episode one podcast from Jim's Jazz Room. A jazz room of the gods it is in here. Full of stuff on the wall. Full of mouthpieces in drawers. How many's in that box, man? Quite a few. hundred golden shining leagues. (laughs) (laughs) So, we're here. And we're going to talk about some things, mouthpieces... Other things, musical in general, the life of a musician, all the stuff we get up to, stuff we've done. There's going to be competitions, little giveaways from the Corey Brothers Jazz Stuff Shop. We're going to have news uh, about albums and resources and interesting things. We're going to have some stories about gigs. We're going to have... uh, a special feature called The Envelope. Oh no. Where one of us will write something and present it to the other one completely unplanned and uh, see how they see how they take that. I don't like the sound of it already. Lots of ideas, saxophone discoveries, tips, um, all things for musicians to enjoy and check out. So we'll just get straight into it. Well, we're going to start with the news. Yeah. The worst news of all, though. Yeah. Ronnie Cuba's died, man. The baritone god, Mr. Ronnie Cuba. No! Um, an absolute legend of the music and uh, probably one of the most revered baritone saxophonists in the history of the music. Yeah. I don't know any sax players, past and present, that have got into the baritone or gone into that voice and that sound that hasn't at some point come across a Ronnie Cuba album and absolutely <laughs> melted their ears. Yeah. <laughs> or got scared and put it back in its box. <laughs> yeah. You know, for me, it was the Cookbook album. Yeah. And then there was a two, two in that series, Cookbook and It's Uptown, George Benson. Um fantastic albums just used to listen to them for years and years and years um just astonishing every time you hear heard his virtuosity on the instrument man terrifyingly amazing made you just feel rubbish didn't he (laughs) made me feel rubbish and um but amazed he uh (laughs) he just set the standard set the bar way too high so cool Another album that I had, uh, Baritone Explosion, it was called, with him and Nick Brignola mm. on it, a live album. Um, yeah, and a good friend of ours, a great trombone player called Kev Holbrough, was lucky enough to guest with the Mingus Big Band mm. at the Assembly Rooms in Leeds and said he remembered walking into the first, uh, well, you know, he'd been called to go and do it, got his trombone, headed straight there walked in Ronnie Cuba was in a corridor just roasting <laughs> imagine what that's like I'm gonna be on stage with him tonight oh man so yeah that's very very sad news but 
his music will live on with us for forever. Yeah. So, uh, jazz financial news. The end. We all like to keep everyone up to date with the financial figures of jazz. The chart is being plotted as we speak on the graph. Uh, the jazz stock market last night closed at 1150 crotchets up from 866 crotchets. So, you know, keep watching the crotchets. Um, I think probably a lot of jazz investors made a lot of money this week on the market. Absolutely. The various stocks going up and down of artists, products that travel <laughs> up and down the market. Yeah, there's going to be some gear shifting happening very, very soon. <laughs> so I'd invest in crotchets. Our advice from Corey Brothers is watch the crotchets and invest. Because I don't think you can go wrong with the most basic fundamental element of music. They think it's worth a shot. So, some ideas, listening, uh, some stuff that we've been checking out recently. Um, just thought it might be interesting for some of our listeners that are finding new things to listen to. Um, albums, clips, etc., etc. Um, what have you been checking out? Um I actually listened to some Eric Clapton last night oh, that I forgot about on a while I was on a YouTube odyssey <laughs> <laughs> of um, things I used to watch when I was a teenager or when I was younger that like blew my mind and that are now there you can watch them whenever you want. Like. All those books I had, Twenty Four Nights, yeah. all those guitar transcriptions. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a version of Bob Dylan's don't think twice it's all right and it was like from a live gig where it was like some bob dylan celebration some anniversary thing and it was all ridiculous band booker t and the mgs with the band and anyway steve cropper stood behind clapton and he's with his mouth open basically and i forgot when i first heard that it just blew my brain he goes on there like a ninja mm -hmm. and just takes the whole thing just so coolly he turns the tune into like kind of shuffly bluesy thing mm. but it's killer you can't appreciate other instruments and the things that people have done on them and maybe we should do that on our website have a little page that's like do you know what yeah, I mean? man. a little we'll put some of these links up on there things we like that have influenced us all yeah or it could be a revolving thing just uh yeah you know or suggestions people send them in yeah. stuff you like watching this the resource now available on YouTube is just mind-blowing of remembering yeah. things and going, oh, yeah, is that on YouTube? Yeah. <laughs> I've gone to so many gigs that I watched that were on once on BBC Two when we were kids and now. It's funny, you think that people are constantly looking at it, but I was teaching a student a few weeks, well, it was just before the summer, and they were asking me, what should I work on over summer? What should I check out? What should I do? And... I said, look, you know, who are you into? They were really into Stan Getz. I said, great, you know, get let's get on YouTube, look up some concerts and open my computer and put his name in, clicked on a link. Mm. And the student was, their face sort of dropped. And I said, what, what's up? And they were like, why have I never thought to do that? <laughs> God, I said, what do you mean, had... why have I never thought to, to, to use YouTube as a resource? To learn stuff. To, to watch your heroes so God, if you think people do do it but some people aren't doing that 
So get on there, check out some links, check out Ronnie Cuba. Remember when you used to have to order the Omnibook from America and it took six weeks to come <laughs> from in, like, up London, go up to some shop and like, have you got the Omnibook? No, we've got to order it from America. It's going to take six weeks. We've got oh. it in C. <laughs> I've got the blue one. I've got <laughs> don't want the blue one I want the yellow one having to go into HMV have you got my album yet I paid £21 three weeks ago no 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 it's still not here Antonio Hart Roy Hardgrove <laughs> please come on yeah, I want to no, check him out and you've got it you can see it <laughs> it's amazing and it is all there but some people don't engage in that And but you know hopefully people do because there's everything on there you could ever wish for God. go down that rabbit hole i know and find yourself <laughs> i feel like your listening stuff's gonna be like all blues yeah, stuff mine's is. all gonna be like crazy heavy full-on jazz yeah stuff. i think it's exactly where it's gonna go <laughs> <laughs> so i got an album uh well i'm always constantly buying albums and checking things out but last couple of weeks i bought uh, Miguel Zenon's latest release, cool. Music de las Americas. Oh, yeah. Miguel Zenon Quartet, um, I'll be totally honest, s- some of it, I have no idea what's going on <laughs> because it's just so complex, but it absolutely blows my mind. Um, if he's new to you, please go check him out. He's one of the greatest living exponents of the alto saxophone yeah and south america music um it's just utterly stunning the virtuosity of all of the members of the group and uh i just it's just blown me away it's what you get from being yourself isn't it playing how you want to play yeah and the fusion of, of like bebop yeah. and that whole language and that whole history and the connection and the lineage to the music and the language but fused with the whole rhythmical and vast elements of South American music. Um, combine that with incredible compositions and s- immense skill from everyone involved. It's absolutely mind-blowing. <laughs> so maybe, again, we'll see if we can put a link up to that somewhere. Yeah, cool. Definitely. So that's some listening stuff that we've been... Uh, listening to um, so should we like talk about what we're actually here for really yeah because it isn't just mouthpieces is it that's like in it but yeah so mouthpiece is gonna feature this isn't like product placement though is it no <laughs> just... we will talk about mouthpieces and our comings and goings over the <laughs> years with them <laughs> <laughs> but it isn't solely to do with mouthpiece it's just about great chat stories and what we've learned about being in the industry and musicians basically i think for the last primarily that's what our brains are 25 plus years mm. look at our haggard old tired faces <laughs> sucked dry who's wearing out. glasses now oh, i've got them on i need them pass them over yeah yeah plus plus one yeah not that bad Yep, I can see again. Like a young man. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to have guests on the show every few episodes. Uh, 
next episode, our guest is a mate of ours uh, called Steve Parry, who is uh, a ridiculously talented <laughs> musician, an arranger, a trumpeter, everything you want to play. Multi-instrumentalist. Everything you want to play, he can play better than you. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and could sight read on your own instrument better than you. Uh, Steve is the... He writes the, the stuff for the band. He writes the charts for The Voice. He's, the, yeah, one of the musical directors. Yeah. And uh, we went to college with Steve <laughs> and uh, had a cool time. And we've been mates since we were like 19 years old or something. So we're, we're having Steve on for a chat and it's going to be very interesting. We're not going to give away what we're going to talk about now. But Just be really insightful to get Steve's approach on how he got into the industry and how he's worked his way through and and up to be working with some of the biggest names in the industry hard work yeah super dedication talent so that's going to be our next episode um there's going to be more special guests along the way um musicians uh non-musicians so we've got some exciting things in the pipeline which will keep you informed about um but this is our pilot episode pilot so it's new to us we're enjoying it we're just chatting and seeing what happens and um we did hope... you bring the envelope then yeah <gasps> yeah should we do the envelope now terrifying <laughs> it's not that bad it's like it's that bit in Star Wars where you see Vader's boots on that shiny floor. Do, 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 do. You know that bit where Vader comes into the Death Star and he gets out of his thing and like you see his feet walking along the polished floor? I have to confess, I didn't actually have an envelope. <laughs> so I've made oh, one. i made one. But I've written on it, the envelope. So we had an idea that we, we're both chatting and we're coming up with ideas of what we want to talk about. But there was one part of it where I said I want it to be a bit of a surprise. So this is the envelope. So I'm going to hand you the envelope. What? I have to open it? Yeah. It's just a little question. A question. Just an interesting thing. Um, and you can ask me if you want. Oh, yeah. If you had a time machine or access to one... Which musician would you travel back to see? <laughs> this could be a certain gig or concert or a specific performance. You only have three hours use of the time machine. Yes. Well, it's interesting, that, isn't it? It's so how you can have a moment. Three hours. You could either watch one killing gig, like I'm going to Woodstock for three hours, man, <laughs> up the front. <laughs> or I'm going to go and see Bird on 52nd Street, <laughs> run across the road and watch Coleman Hawkins <laughs> run back. <sighs> you see, that is interesting. Maybe there's multiple uses of the time machine. Well, I saw this thing on a podcast where these guys asked Mike Tyson who in history he would want to fight like, but they meant in boxing history. Mm. And Mike Tyson's answer was Achilles. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, what? <laughs> so he was like yeah Achilles man <laughs> and they're like Achilles like well you know they kind of were like oh we thought we were, you were going to say Jack Dempsey or <laughs> Rocky Marciano one of the great other 
And he went, if you want to test yourself, you've got to test yourself against the best. <laughs> I'm not doing a Mark Tyson impression because he'll just... If you want to test yourself, you've got to test, you test yourself. yourself against the best. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Achilles was the greatest warrior ever, man. <laughs> and these guys are like young dudes on this boxing podcast and they're just open-mouthed at this beast in front of them who wants to go back and fight Achilles, man. So I've thought about I've thought about this a bit before once. I've, I'm, you're going to be surprised. Mm. I'd quite like to go back and hear Bach play. Ooh, nice. How he phrased stuff. And like, what a killer he was on the keyboard. Like, you, yeah. Because you know, if you like try and play his stuff on sax and there's nowhere to breathe, and you're like, Ugh. but they're so beautifully constructed and there's such perfection in it. You always wonder how he would have phrased it. Would it have been any different from us? I doubt it, because we're the same people in it, right? Mm. I read a story about him that a French organist challenged him and said, "What? What you think?" Everyone says you're the best in Europe. I'm going there. We're going to have a like organ battle. We're going to have cut heads. Mm -hmm. So this guy got in a coach, went to where Bach was, and was, and the story goes that as he pulled up in the carriage outside, he heard Bach practicing in this church. Doors were open. He's like going on, and the French guy said, "Who's that?" And they said, that's Bach. And he was all like, okay, drive on. <laughs> <laughs> and like, didn't get out and want to do the battle with Bach. So uh, mm. obviously there's Bird and all them people, isn't there? But like, oh God, I'd love to hear him razzing on an organ. It's a hard one. Maybe you're allowed. Because obviously there are like sax players I'd really want to see, but there's something like historical for me about it. When I was in Venice, I saw... Um, Vivaldi's church where he worked mm. and it's still there. It's this little tiny like chapel thing. And we were walking along this front, this bit, and the people we were with said, oh, that's Vivaldi's church. And I was like, what? Like, what? Because I think we studied the four seasons of like GCSE music. <laughs> and I just went in. And obviously there was a string quartet in there playing his stuff. And it was like, shh, be quiet, light a candle. <laughs> <laughs> but I was in there and it was all wood and dark and amazing I was just like Vivaldi came in here and worked and wrote stuff and brought guys in and rehearsed mm. that's where he did it so I have something about those guys I'd love to hear how they phrased and how they yeah it's pretty crazy isn't it was it different to us did they have a different you know yeah so what what about you though let me read it again. <laughs> You've only if got three you hours. If you had a time machine or access to one, which musician would you travel back to see? <sighs> uh, well, I think you know the answer for me. Bird? Charlie yeah. Parker. It would be Charlie Parker at the legendary Rockland Palace <laughs> concert. Yeah. Which I've got a CD of. I've lent it to you. Uh, he did five sets that night with strings. Wow. Live. Some of them were with strings, some of them without strings. And it was a huge ball or a, an event, like a gala event. Um, but it would have to be that. I think they only got two of the sets recorded, but from two different places. So they've merged the recording, oh, yeah. so you hear Bird in stereo. Is that on Less Than Leaps In? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I remember that. And I remember reading Chan Parker's autobiography, an amazing book actually called My Life in E Flat. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Chan Chan Parker, Charlie Parker's wife, um, and she said that their daughter had been born a few days previous to this gig, so Bird was buzzing yeah and in a good place and just turned up and you hear it on that recording it's just full of joy and full of life and full of just incredible spontaneity take an iphone back and film it i'd have to go and stand there and watch that and just be at the front put a mini drone out and fly around him (laughs) yeah there is another one there's a concert that he did in Montreal in Canada. With Mingus and that? No, it? no, oh, it's nah. just he we went along to do this radio broadcast and um they announced to him that when he got there it's being recorded mm. which I think he properly kicked off about, it says in the linear notes in the in the album. And then they managed to persuade him, they said. So I'm not sure. <laughs> What the persuasion was, perhaps a financial incentive or something else, who knows. But he's on fire on that. Mm. And because because it was for radio, the takes just go on and on. So you just hear chorus after chorus after chorus. So there's not the three minute, you know, usual take. So you hear more of what he would have been like live. And I think. Yeah, it's got to either be one of those two, I think, for me. Um, yeah, I'd, I think I'd die happy then. I'm thinking Muddy Waters or Howling Wolf somehow as well. Maybe I could, like, razz back to Bach. So you're going to hear this, the, the, the blue stuff for you and the crazy jazz stuff for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's so difficult, that, isn't it? Maybe every week we do the time. If people should send in their time travel one. Yeah. Because it always makes you think when other people say, oh, what's so go and see Louis Armstrong doing da 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 contacted again. You have another access to the time. Or Buddy Bolden, who was never recorded, go back to New Orleans and find a gig of his. There's so many, though, even away from jazz. Do you know what I mean? Like Hendrix or something. Like, yeah. God, going back to see Hendrix. Like you said, Woodstock, Isle of Wight, or you know, something mega. Yeah, even ones that weren't even documented. Mm. Imagine ones that have been written about that were never recorded, but that night they just were like on it, you know, or turned up somewhere. Yeah, but that was the first envelope. Well, I like that. So I'm awaiting. It wasn't as like dark side as I thought. I thought you were going to ask me some ridiculous. Well, like... you can. You can freak me out with your one next time. <laughs> next episode. <laughs> so each episode, we're going to do a little bit where something that something that interests us, we might talk about for a few minutes and like maybe in, enlighten or let everyone know something they might not have learned. Or, but we, you know, the podcast, the yep, saxophone related and all that. But really, you know, there are things that relate to everyone and all kinds of. Every everyone who plays, um, so so we're interested in that kind of stuff, really, things that we can all get something from. I'm also really aware that our voices are really similar. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's Paul over there. Yeah, I don't know how. 
And this is Jim. Do you remember when we went out? <laughs> we could phone Dad up and like, and uh, just Hiya. go, "All right, Dad." All right, Dad. And he wouldn't know whether it was me or you. And go, <laughs> uh, "Hello, uh, Paul, uh, Jay." <laughs> Hopefully, you'll get to know who's who. Yeah. But Paul's going to chat a little bit about. Um, well, I suppose it's on the like resources stuff checked out. You've been checking out yeah. a new book-wise. Mm. You're book always wise. reading, aren't you? I'm not a massive reader, but you I can't are. stop reading stuff. I know you're always phoning me up. Have you read? Oh, I've got this thing I've been reading. <laughs> I think maybe it's because I can't see very well. well. You need my glasses. <laughs> 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 but tell us a little bit about I've what you've been um, reading. What I've been reading is a book that does relate to like all musicians. It does relate to like all musicians, and um, <laughs> it's a book called "Music and Musicians in Ancient Egypt," and it's by Lise Manish. I'll have a look on the back in a bit and tell you what it's published by. But I can't quite see. I'll do that in the end. Put your glasses on. Uh... <laughs> Put your glasses on. Clark Kent. Gee, Lois. <laughs> <laughs> it says printed in Great Britain. It doesn't even say on it. On the side. It's quite academic. I, I would say it's not laugh a minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, published by British Museum Press. Mm. See, it's serious. It's heavy. Mm. Um. What's it called again? Music and Musicians in Ancient Egypt. Nice. So it's... You've always been into Egypt. Yeah, and all that old stuff, but um, this is pretty much the definitive book about it because there's only so much they know Mm. and only so much has been discovered yet, maybe, and so there may may be more stuff to discover. But um, I did write some notes down here, just of stuff, because it's... It's so, it's so relative to how we all are today and stuff we all do and stuff we all <laughs> have done, stuff that happens to us all, blah, 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 blah. So it turns out that music in ancient Egypt is, it was similar to today um, in terms of it had function and reason for each type of performance or band or ensemble. And what we know about it is from tombs, right? The tombs of the wealthy, not kings, but the tombs of the rich, like, art-loving benefactor fat dudes who sat eating grapes all day going like, right, I want a band in on Friday (laughs) and I want (laughs) A, B, or C and we are feasting. And we are having a band. Right, so there are scenes of music, musicians, and uh, things that they've deduced stuff about the life of musicians and how it works. Mm. So these rich guys were benefactors of the arts, patrons of the arts. Um, And what they would do would have their favourite bands, some cases there are actual musicians named, on the wall in their tomb. So that when they went off to the afterlife, they had that gig. They had that band with them on the solar boat. Nice. Right? So they rock up to Ra and he's like, good choice of band on the solar <laughs> boat. Um, 
But it's interesting, the word for music in ancient Egyptian is spelt in our words H-S-T, but it's pronounced Heset. And the hieroglyph contains an, a human arm and a hand, like an elbow and a hand pointing up, which is to signify the conductors of the ensembles. Mm. So there are pictures of various ensembles and the, most of them will have a guy at the front who's kneeling and he's doing different things with his with their hands. There are different poses or different... <laughs> Dude. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Close yeah. encounters. That's what he's doing. So they they and wonder the if those hand things are signifying different sections yeah. of the piece. Like mm. this is the vocal section or the... Da -da -da -da. So the word hasset meant to sing, to dance, to praise, uh, to perform. But in another context, it, it meant something quite cool, I think. They had no clocks or like sundial -y things. They didn't tell the time in the day like we do. They probably just got up when it was light worked until it was dark or whatever. But the word hasset is used for the passing of time, mm. the pulse of time. So, you know, beat in music is obviously a thing that is there. So it, they had percussion, they had lutes, mm. they had woodwind sections, uh, they had these like double clarinet things <laughs> that are called. You sent me a picture once, didn't you? Was it, do you remember that? Like ancient Egyptian. And it looked like a mouthpiece. Yeah, there's like a with, weird thing with, in the museum. Yeah. With like wood and then brass. It's lapis lazuli. It's a blue lapis tube. Yeah, and it looks like it's got rails. In the Cairo a, Museum. And I don't know what it is. Yeah, and it would have it, had a reed It does look it. like, yeah, well, they know they had reed instruments. Yeah, blowing down. And they, they know they had double reed, like oboe type thing. And they had single reed. Hmm. Um, the bands were like mixed sexes. Men and women played all together. It seems like women like kicked the mm. backside of men on loot because mm. so many of the pictures are like four or five women on loot. They believe they had a common tuning system mm. because all the loots are drawn with frets. There are surviving ones that have frets mm. and stuff. So, but like I said, it's a it is an academic book and it's yeah. quite heavy and it talks a lot about. You have to kind of keep up sometimes with the with the the king or the era they're talking about and mm. blah 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 blah. But it shows a complete development of instruments and the way they develop things. Um, there's a there's a whole chapter in it that like totally really is the chapter in it that like blew my mind, and the chapter in it is called the blind harpist. Mm. Now, the, they had various sizes of harp, and there are some surviving ones. Um, and they're like full mat size. You'd stand up, and it would be leant against your like, shoulder, and you'd reach around and do it. So there's this guy in it. I can't quite remember his name, but he was the Pharaoh's MD. <laughs> he had a title of like master of music for upper and lower Egypt. The Steve Parry of the Egypt. The Steve Parry of Egypt. <laughs> or the Ray Charles of Egypt, because <laughs> yeah. he was blind. Yeah, right. right. right? And, um, so the Pharaoh was called, whatever, whoever was Pharaoh at the time was called like 
master lord of upper and lower Egypt, the north and south of the Nile. So this guy had some serious like title mm. to be called the master of music for like upper and lower Egypt. And his job was to go around all the temples, knocking into shape all the bands for all the religious music and things. I can't quite remember his name. It was something like, you know, Zetacheler or something. Now, this dude got his own little tomb about as big as this little jazz room we're in here. Mm. A little one-piece one tomb, no rooms off it. But he got his own tomb. And um, it shows four pictures of him. And it shows... So he's bald and like, you know, they drew them all in profile. Mm -hmm. He has the Egyptian eye, but no pupil in his eye, Man. which signifies he's blind. And then the last picture just has a line where his eyes are shut. Mm. So that means he's blind, right? Um, the first picture is of him playing to a god. So it shows in this, the books tells, it shows that he played religious music but worthy of the gods. Mm. The second picture is of him playing his harp to the pharaoh. The third one is of him on a gig with other musos, like <laughs> drums and these lutes. The fourth one is him on his own in a pose that is found in no other picture of any harp player that they've found so far in ancient Indian. There's quite, there are a few. What he's doing is he's plucking it with his left hand but he's reaching down with his right hand to the bottom of the string where the string joins the body of the harp and he's bending the string with his hand. Nice. So they're celebrating in this picture that he invented this technique of, he was like the Hendrix of, of the ancient Egyptian harp. So he's like plucking a note and bending it at the bottom of the, where it joins the sort of bridge bit. And that was his thing. So that celebrated in that picture. This is what he did. So there's this like blind Hendrix harp dude in ancient Egypt. Yeah. Who got his own tomb and was revered as being. But it made you think, you know, you look at the pictures and there's like 11 piece bands, 14 piece bands, mm. 22 in one of them, I think. And because it's an academic book, they're quite on the fence about things like the tuning issue. Yeah. And they, because there's there's no hard, hard evidence of certain things, they can't dare, they daren't say it. Mm. So they say things like, we, here's a picture of 14 guys. There's like five horns, right? Yeah, yeah. Three lutes, a harp dude, a drummer. The Tower of Power. The Tower of Power of like Ramesses <laughs> thing. The <laughs> Ramesses sole vaccination thing. What is hip? Yeah. And, um... <laughs> But they say in the book things like, we're not sure if they played all the same note at the same time or did they play polyphonically? And it's like, well, of course they, course did. they did. Yeah. They don't say it. They know they mm -hmm. must have. Uh, the harps, the harps are interesting because they have more holes on the bottom for stringing than at the top. So they think that the harps could be strung in different tunings mm. that because they weren't, you know, there was too many holes, at 14 holes at the bottom, but 11 at the top. And so they know they weren't putting two strings on one peg because mm. they just didn't do that. They think, you know, you could have put the harp into open G or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> open G tuning. <clears throat> so, but it's, 
it is fascinating about the way that they all played and the way they had conductors, sections, organisation, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. It, it just made me think about how we are all still doing the same thing as that. Mm. If you were in the horn section, man, playing double clarinet for like Ramesses. <laughs> go into that you know I bet they got skanked though as well I bet they got ripped what off what was that um, again, I bet they got getting... ripped off yeah, yeah. I bet they came back with like a hundred quid for playing at Ramesse <laughs> at Karnak or they go home and their wife's like what do you mean one and a half cups of grain yeah you said it was two no no man the, I, I said that to the guy and he just went it's one and a half I know that would <laughs> <laughs> that's what would have happened to did them, you get though. some food while you were there no you should have seen the feast they had <laughs> we just had to play for like nine hours straight and got a one and a half cups of grain when they said it was two <laughs> but you know we did Ramesses gig man it was mental I can't act. it was amazing <laughs> <laughs> it would have been the same wouldn't it why would it have been an indifferent <laughs> you, we're getting on to sort of Egypt and music and a little bit like that but it's, it's fascinating. Tell me about, you, I remember you telling me about that pyramid, that step pyramid yeah. that was called like, what was the translation that came? The oh, the, yeah, there's been, oh, it's the, uh, the Bent Pyramid. The one of frequencies. The, the, the house of two sound, two frequencies or something. It's, there's mm. a translation of what its name. Mm. Yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure I read that. Or the house of two sounds or something. And and the fact that, and that would it have actually been a mistake? Like they went up halfway at that level, and went it's going to look wrong, build it different, and made it shallower. But the idea was that frequencies were generated to heal people. Right? Yeah, that's what some people think. Mm. Some people think about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe we'll get into that one another time. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Egyptian podcast, music podcast. <laughs> but it's interesting. I just think like. They were us, those people. They built the pyramids of that, you know, for generations. Those people back then, they're the same as us. Mm. They are us, but they just lived in a different time. Why would it have been any different for for those dudes? It wouldn't. No. Imagine the reed trouble they had. But mind you, they live by the Nile, right? Which is like <laughs> millions of reeds that grow <laughs> on the side. They'd have had the pick of the best. Forget all these new... <laughs> the cane of the gods. Yeah, they had the cane of the gods there. <laughs> I bet they all sounded brilliant, but if they could just get a new one any time they wanted. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> I did a gig uh, a long time ago out in South Africa. And I remember taking my horn and just going to this sort of street band thing. I remember looking at all the horn players and how they all had just terrible manky reeds on because it's really hard to get yeah. get them out there yeah. at that point. You know, we're talking, uh, I don't know, early 2000s maybe, but um, I remember looking and like they all sounded killing these players. <laughs> yeah. And I remember we were flying back to the UK the next day and uh, I had loads of reeds in my case <laughs> so I remember looking and just yeah, come over oh what what got all these reeds out you know new boxes of I think they were like select jazz <laughs> yeah. and gave oh cheers you know all piling round me for these reeds and uh, 
all of them taking their ligatures <laughs> off and putting these new reeds on. And then this whole thing just went like, boom. <laughs> you know, the sound like doubled. Yeah. Cheers, cheers. And this guy that was conducting was looked over like, what the hell's just happened? <laughs> so, yeah. Can you imagine what they had? But it sounded killing. Yeah. <laughs> what's the thing you want to talk about then this week? Well, pilot. Yeah, it's well, it's a totally different to yours. Good. <laughs> I've I've been reading. Well, it's it's a bit weird, but well, it's not weird. But I've been reading a book, um, written about Conor McGregor, Ooh. the amazing UFC cage fighter submitter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> submitter as Khabib would say <laughs> the submitter but yeah, the but book is the book is about saying. process basically and like engaging in something and getting into it and yeah, doing it just for engaging in the in the process yeah. um, and the bit that stood out for me about the book was all about practicing so obviously people that listen to this podcast maybe saxophonist musicians in general but we've all at some point in what we do having to engage in practicing what we're doing because obviously we're wanting to get better at what we're doing um so it was quite interesting reading about practicing an art form that isn't necessarily music but totally relates to what we're doing um and the whole premise of it was naive practice Mm, i don't like the sound of that (laughs) naive naive practice versus purposeful practice so it kind of goes into we engage in naive practice whenever we expect to continually advance our level of skill by simply doing an activity. So I want to get better at tennis. I'm just going to go and play tennis. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll play it for a bit and I'm getting better. Great. And you do, right? You get a little bit better. I'm kind of getting the hang of this. (laughs) Right? But that that isn't enough because you're going to plateau at some point so you're literally just engaging the activity you're going to see a spike of improvement but that isn't enough and it will only last so long um a plateau the point at which mindlessly doing an activity only helps us to maintain our current skill level rather than leading to further advancement So it goes on to talk about um, what purposeful practice involves. Um, So setting specific goals for what you're doing, um, how to focus on what you're doing, how to get feedback on what you're doing, um, and creating what it calls closed loops. So identifying a weakness in what you're doing, form a clear mental picture of what it would feel and look like to gain the skill that would then fill that weakness, 
break the new skill down into basic components, um, find or design activities that target those components, perform those activities with intense focus. So again, we could kind of go into that whole thing and then use feedback to refine and repeat the above steps until each component can be reliably performed and then carefully integrate these components so they feel natural. So creating a cycle of practice to target one specific skill set. He talks about it in the gym, working on a certain move. Why didn't that work? You know, what what went wrong? And the whole point of it is that it has to go wrong for you to get better at it. There has to be a failure. Like getting your ass kicked on a gig by someone. Yeah. Like why? Yeah, I totally <laughs> totally remember that. I remember that moment of that that went wrong. And you'll yeah. think about it and learn and engage in it. So you then understand why and then you want to sort of put it right. So it's just quite an interesting thing of you know, maybe even from a saxophone point of view, getting your saxophone out. Okay, yeah, let's have a blow, play a few things you know. Yeah, great, sounding great today. Brilliant, right? Pop it back. And how many times do we do that? Quite a lot. Millions. (laughs) So trying to break it down, setting yourself a specific goal, one little thing, and talks a lot about the focus, focusing intensely about what you're doing. Um, so yeah, that's just something that I've been kind of talking about to some students that I teach. What do Um, you think when you, because it's kind of like learning to be a really like, uh, brutally honest self editor. Yeah. As well. Looking at yourself and going, no, uh, it's that, that I'm, I think, I think they, you know, to like, look at what you're not. Yeah, you know what I mean. Taking yourself outside your comfort zone, I think, is what it's all about, and understanding that it's all right to be working on stuff that you can't do. Yeah, you should be setting yourself stuff that is beyond the level of where you're at, and that's uncomfortable. And our natural default is to want to maybe go back to something that's comfortable, Mm. but being okay with that uncomfortableness in order to progress slowly at something so when you put it to people or people that i've been talking to about it they they yeah they get it you know so it's like that thing in it that you've talked about with um bird the lester leaps in is that one where he goes up half step halfway through it is it in that one there's one version of lester leaps in where he's ragging it yeah and then it goes up semitone and the band are like uh no yeah what why (laughs) <laughs> and he's just like and the reason is everyone else didn't ever try and do rhythm changes in B yeah or you know what I mean <laughs> no. but he did it was hard enough in it was hard enough kid. in B flat but now Bird's like oh no imagine them, their faces when he turned around and put his hand up like that up like Let's one go. half step they're like no please but that's looking at yourself isn't it can you play rhythm changes in B no <laughs> no but it's just it's just it's just 
you know, um, I just think it's really interesting. And it was interesting to read it in a book about something that was completely different and how it applies to music and yeah. art and what we're doing as, as players. Um, so there's a great quote that it says in the end of the book again, which is talks about a person who succeeds has a purpose. They set their course and adhere to it. So knowing what you're working on and why you're doing it. And the quote is by Orison Marden that says, 150 pounds of human flesh and blood weigh nothing on the scale of manhood without weight of will and tenacity of purpose. You gotta say it like Conor McGregor, man. No, don't. <laughs> I can imagine him saying that and just looking at you while he's saying it. But it's it's great, isn't it? It's like you know you you have a purpose to what you're doing. Mm. Um, you have a you have a reason and and a, you know where we want to do. Where are the errors and how we can improve them? Because really, everyone everyone's practicing. You get older and you've got to a level you can play and you're happy and do a little and you're gigging and you. But the. You really should have as much practice going on as young dudes coming through, young people who are like learning the craft and like putting the hours in. You know, it's hard. We like, should, life gets in the hard. way, right? Yeah. Sometimes out, you're out there, you're gigging, you're performing, you're teaching, you're playing, family maybe, other things, yeah. wanting to actually relax and break from music. But maybe sometimes... Practice. Yeah, we need to like get in there and keep doing it, you know? You know what you're not good at, don't you? <laughs> well, it says, unless you know. we can identify the pitfalls of naive practice, mm. we often don't realise that we've shifted into autopilot and stopped improving. Mm. Totally. Everyone goes um, to those plateaus of weird boredom and f- floundering. Yeah. So the book the book was called Singleness of Purpose. Mm. Um, and it's just... It was just quite interesting, that whole section and how I found it quite the parallel between that. And it could be anything. It could be chess, you know. Um, if you're playing chess, you know, the feedback you get from playing a game is whether like you win or lose. But it says in the book, the better feedback would be a computer program pointing out our bad moves and suggesting superior alternatives. (laughs) So the best feedback you can get is from someone explaining how the thought process that led to our bad moves was flawed or incomplete. So actually recording yourself or getting someone to listen to you and not saying what they think is working or saying what they think isn't working. People like Cole Train were doing that definitely, weren't they? Yeah. That sort of deep <laughs> but how many times were they like recording themselves you know and being in a studio and playing like under that pressure of like mm. this is going down being comfortable in that process and then hearing that record back you know um whereas sometimes we're playing and we're just playing and it's gone um i remember when mark turner came to uh, Leeds Conservatoire where I lecture and um, came in the room again for people that don't know Mark Turner is just again one of the world's leading exponents of the tenor saxophone um, and 
immediately put an Eddie Roll microphone recorder out in front of himself. And we were doing this workshop and every time they played as the group, you know, some of the students would ask him to play a standard maybe or something. He'd go down and start the Eddie Roll and then they'd play. Everyone would clap and ask more questions and it'd stop, stop the thing. And at the end, someone asked him, you know, what, what's that? What are you doing? I record myself all the time, no matter whether I'm practicing or every time I go to play, I record myself and I'll do it for about until I've got three, four, five hours worth. Then I'll put it on my computer. I'll save it all. Then when I'm traveling on the road on an aeroplane in my car, I listen back to it. And it's brutal, you know, he was saying. But he said, what I'm trying to identify when I'm listening to myself is what what didn't I like that I was doing? You know, what what wasn't working? And mm. that's immediately apparent, like, oh, what the hell were you <laughs> doing there? You know, and for someone like him, who's an absolute master of the idiom and the music and the instrument, um, we'd probably hear it and think it was incredible. But he's he's hearing things that weren't on point for himself. But then he also said something quite interesting, which was when you identify something that you did play that you felt like when you played it. So he was saying, you know, if I play something and the intent that on that moment and I remember doing it and I felt it coming across in the music, yeah, that that was right, that was good, you know. That's what I wanted to do in that moment. So more of that and then less of that. Mm. And he just says it's a constant evaluation thing, constantly. So for someone at that top level that is is doing that and getting their own feedback all the time, um, maybe that's something we should all do more of. <laughs> and we're all doing it, right? But since, since COVID and all that stuff, yeah. loads of people have got more recording things, maybe most people have now got set up where they've had to go on Zoom and yeah, totally. record and microphones. And so perhaps recording yourself playing and recording gigs and then listening back to it in your own time and seeing what's working and what isn't working is that closed loop. Mm. Anyway, enough of the boring saxophone stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. No, it is. How things are applied in different fields always have a relationship to what you're doing. So that was our little, um, I don't know what that section was called. Stuff we're into and things we've read. <laughs> I think we'll just call it that. We'll have the theme tune for it. Stuff we're into and things we've read. It sounds like that. Why don't you? Do you remember that? <laughs> Why don't you? Stuff we're into and we've read. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> There'll be more of that. There'll be more books. There'll be more interesting stuff. Um, Paul's will be really like otherworldly and spiritual and really bluesy and earthy and mine will be really jazz and nerdy. Well, <laughs> I sometimes wonder if players today are like, uh, if everyone overthinks as well, though. Sometimes are we taught people overthinking a bit, too worried about this moment that everyone hears as just a moment you're playing something it's just a moment to everyone in the crowd and the only reason it'd be a bad moment to them is if you played something hideously badly wrong or squeaked like crazy I mean it was obviously like Ugh. 
But we forget that most people listening who aren't musicians, that's just a moment. Each note is a, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a one and a zero in a digital thing. Yes, one, one, zero, zero. And sometimes we, I think people sometimes overanalyze things. If you came away from the gig going, yes, I felt that. We were all like mm. on it. Then yeah, but sometimes, how many, we've but all yeah, said you have it to before. How many times do you do a gig where you've played and you've come off and everyone's like, oh, you sounded killing tonight. <laughs> and you're like, I just didn't I, get I can't, it. No, I can't remember what uh, I was doing. Can't remember. Can I? Did I? And then maybe. But does that mean you were in the zone and you didn't need to record it? Because that's the place you're supposed to be. No, maybe that you were just letting go a bit more and that, yeah. that, that, something else took over you know and that you weren't thinking about it so everyone else was digging what you were doing but you can't remember because perhaps when you get to that place are you in control of what's going on hopefully not the conduit Sonny Rollins was asked um, what do you think about when you're playing and he was like oh well hopefully not a lot but <laughs> yeah and then they pressed him in this interview and he said, okay, well, if I have to try and give you an answer and pin it down, he said, I'm trying to open the window in the centre of my chest and let the spirits fly in and out. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing, what an amazing thing. And if that, you know, you know, it's just passing it through me. Plays, doesn't it? <clears throat> yeah. How many people are going to achieve that or or are going on stage trying to achieve that feeling when oh, they go to play yeah. or are they thinking oh, I've got to run that thing I just learned it's B flat minor <laughs> E flat seven <laughs> you know yeah anyway we'll get into more saxophone and jazz and but musical also, technical stuff because we're here to help slightly as well <laughs> we've got we have this very large book here. You can't really hear how big and bulky <laughs> it is. It's massive. It's um, it's a book found in an old um, found in an old antique shop, dusty on the shelf. And it's the uh, official musical medical dictionary <laughs> that. Um, contains an absolutely gigantic amount of diseases and symptoms and awful things that can happen to musicians that, you know, doctors and physicians need to look out for <laughs> and be aware. Now, I was looking through it. It's huge, this book. I was looking through it. And I read this thing once about bodybuilders, some guys who were like the massive dudes. They have this thing called body dysmorphia where they look in the mirror and they're not muscly enough. But to me and you, we're like, you look like the Hulk, mate. But they are, they don't think they are. So I was flicking through it and I actually found jazz dysmorphia, <laughs> which uh, it describes the symptoms and um, the terrible consequences of, catch, of getting it if you catch it or get it. It says... Um, Jazz dysmorphia, quote, a disease that affects jazz musicians. <laughs> Symptoms begin as an obsession with playing continuous quavers over chord progressions. As the condition progresses, all other rhythmic devices are gradually lost 
to the hapless musician. Triplets, dotted crotchets, minims, semi-brews and more become apparently useless and meaningless until only quavers remain, creating a desolate, windy, cold landscape in each solo. It goes on. Unable to create meaningful and beautiful melodies leads to a form of selfish madness where the musician simply retreats into a shell during solos, with all musical communication with the band shut off until the solo <coughs> ends. The condition is generally incurable unless caught and identified early on in the obsession stage. Bass players generally respond to treatment more successfully due to the healing powers of the root note. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I haven't got that. I haven't got that. I've had it. Have you? <laughs> <laughs> I've had it, but the power of the root note brought you back. Yeah. Is it... it took a long time. It was a long, I've slow recovery. <laughs> a long, slow recovery. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be reading out more ailments. There's an ailment every week because this book is massive <laughs> and it's like, it's it's incredible, but it's dangerous because... Every time you read it, you think you've got the thing that you read. So you can flick through it and just read something about, you know, piano player's left hand or something. And then you're just like, have I got that? I've got that. But you haven't. So talking about a little bit about saxophone stuff, obviously, because this is the Corey Brothers mouthpiece. If we have to. Podcast. If we really have to. There's sort of one man that, <laughs> us as saxophonists and makers of mouthpieces owe a big debt to, obviously, Mr. Adolf Sax himself. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I talk to people about this a lot, like, what would I be doing if <laughs> I didn't play the saxophone? Yeah. Or chose the saxophone mm. or as I think Phil Wood says it it chose you yeah. so I often think about it sometimes if the instrument hadn't been invented what, what would we would... all be doing yeah. <laughs> what would everyone else listening know is a saxophone what would you be doing be it's terrifying to think <laughs> yeah but we often forget about it because we have the instrument we develop a career or go become professional musicians or maybe semi-professional musicians or just people that just love playing the saxophone for whatever reason at whatever level whether it's beginner intermediate advanced semi-pro anything you know if, if you're in love with the instrument as we obviously are and you obviously are um well we'll do a whole episode on him yeah we will because when you read about his life and not just the skitty stuff you can go on Google like Adolf Sax did it, when you really get in depth into his life, it's it's, it's incredible the story yeah, about but, him. But it's incredible to think that one man's vision and ability and foresight and tenacity of purpose, yeah, exactly, <laughs> um, was has. Oh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for has enabled me to like Going have a world. career in music yeah, and travel the world and do yeah, stuff and um, perform all over the world with amazing people and and 
give us this whole magical world to go into. Um, we're in Jim's jazz. What do we call it? <laughs> Don't know. Don't <laughs> say jazz hole. Jazz room. Jazz whatever. And um, on the wall, jazz I've, got, room. I've got an old 200... Frank. Franks, Belgian an Frank. old Belgian banknote for before the Euros came. Yeah. And it features a picture of Adolf Sachs here on the banknote. Yeah, cool. And I kept it. It's don't know how much it. that was worth. Probably, yeah, probably like... Sachs currency. Probably five 200. quid or something. Um, But what an amazing thing that there he is on, on the banknote. On the money, he wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, Once. Bank National de been Belgique. Buzzed that he was on the money. Yeah, with a massive picture of Sat's phone. Um, so we will do a whole episode or part of an episode talking more and more about him. But you wanted to talk a I little bit about. Be, yes, I just. We're, we're actually glad that he survived. <laughs> To, yeah. to actually I think it's fitting if we like maybe end this thing on uh where we all it all starts at the beginning and um which is with Adolf Sachs like yeah. you said right so we will go there is so much more to know about him and the things he could do fabricate and it's just my it's mind blowing but there's a a very excellent book that every saxophone player should have called The Devil's Horn by Michael Segel, Segel, don't know how you say it, sorry mate, <laughs> Michael Segel, <laughs> and that's on uh, Picador Press, what is it? The Devil's Horn, it says under it, Segel. the story of the saxophone mm. from noisy novelty to king of cool, but it's it's a very well researched book, if you haven't got it, just go and get it and, and have a read, um, so it starts with, I'm just going to read like three or four paragraphs of it, just because everyone should list, should hear this because it's very interesting. And it starts talking about Adolf Sachs and it's chapter one and it's called The Ghost Child. <laughs> Which you think, what? And it says, he was known as Le Petit Sachs, Le Revenant, the Ghost Child, to the citizens of his village, Dinant, in Belgium. After one of his main, many fatal near accidents, his mother lamented, the child is doomed to suffer. He won't live. The child is doomed to suffer. He won't live. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've got kids, you know that one of your kids is always one of the kids that gets smashed and battered, don't you? Yeah. And this was him. Be careful. Don't you? Oh, it's fell on him. He says, quote, almost before he could walk, little Adolf Sachs, christened Antoine Joseph in 1814, was fascinated with the alchemical magic performed every day in his father's workshop, where the most elemental materials were recombined into the finest brass, which was in turn fashioned into an exquisite musical instrument. Although Charles Joseph Sachs, who had been appointed Belgium's chief instrument maker by William I of Orange, was eager to pass on his skills to his firstborn son, agents of misfortune conspired relentlessly to remove the boy from the land of the living. When he was two, Adolf fell down a flight of stairs, smashed his head on a rock and lay comatose for a week. A year later, toddling around his father's atelier, he mistook sulphate of zinc for milk, <laughs> gulped it down and nearly expired. 
subsequent poisonings, subsequent poisonings involved white lead, copper oxide and arsenic. <laughs> he, he swallowed a needle, burned himself severely on a stove and was badly scorched again by exploding gunpowder, which blew him across the workshop floor. <laughs> He was again rendered comatose by a heavy slate tile that dislodged from a roof and landed on his head. When he was 10, a villager happened to spot the drowning lad. After falling into a river, he was eddying face down and unconscious in a whirlpool above a miller's gate. Oh. The villager just managed to pluck him from the water. Before he entered ad adolescence, his head was scarred by the repeated blows and one side of his body was badly disfigured by burns. And it ends with this bit. But his misadventures proved instructive, <laughs> hardening him for the nasty battles that would plague him as he tried to launch an ingenious musical invention, a serpentine horn whose provenance he secured by naming it after himself. From the moment his lips first touched the saxophone prototype, Adolf Sax would face a juggernaut of slander, theft, litigation, forced bankruptcies, and attempts on his life that tried to suppress his new sound, a sound never before heard in nature, a sound that promised to change the timbre and soul of music wherever it was played. Cool, mm. eh? Mm. But there's well, more, way glad, more to his life. I'm pretty glad he survived, to be fair. Imagine that, you kids. We worry today about, like, don't go at the edge of the pavement. <laughs> Mum, this milk tastes a bit funny. <laughs> Mum. Oh, hang on, let me just check it. No, it's zinc sulfate. Oh, oh don't drink that. That's Daddy's zinc. <laughs> Come out of Daddy's workshop now. Do you remember now. at school, lighting zinc? It's like... Yeah. You know? Horrific. But, so how he survived? Cat of nine lives or whatever. So, yeah, talking more about the amazing man, Mr. Adolf Sachs, which is... I don't know. It's an episode in itself. It's you why really we're here it, doing yeah. what we're doing. If you want to go into it, it's a whole episode. So we wanted to just chat and me and Paul just chat about stuff. And we wanted to just, I suppose, in this first one. The wine would taste nice. What was it? Malbec. Oh, yeah. A little bit of Malbec to oh, yeah. loosen us up on our... Nervous ethers podcast. The pilot. Stop shaking. The pilot. Um, but we just chat and we want it to be very relaxed. But we are going to be getting more and more into the whole mouthpiece world. Um, talking about things we've tried. Talking about our ideas on mouthpieces and sound. But not um, all the time. But not all the time. So we will get into that if that's what you're really tuning in to hear but hopefully you're enjoying other stories and other things that we've got to talk about we're going to talk about gig stories and funny things that we've seen <laughs> traveling the world playing our instruments with some world leading artists all over the world we're going to talk about but we ain't going to boast about that no we we've were talking about that before like, weren't yeah. we oh look at what i've done yeah, no so but obviously it will come out things etc etc there'll be more things about saxophone itself horns ligatures uh, our ideas on sound our ideas on setup our ideas on um, the voice of the instrument and all that is to do with it mm. 
Um, and that's all to come, but we don't want to put it all in the first episode and we don't want to... But there'll be competitions. If you get a gig story that we think cracks us up, or that I have to read out to Jim and he's laughing his face off them. So we want people what? You'll win send prizes. There will be prizes. So send us, email us off from our website, info at corybrothers.com. Or just go to corybrothers.com and you'll find everything. So uh, <laughs> I want some funny gig stories. We've got loads to tell. And they'll come out with guests that we have on. I'll ask you stuff about it. Maybe it'll be in the envelope too at some point. Um, so scared of the envelope now. I might have lulled you in. Oh no, it'll be some mad harmony question. No, it won't. Be I'm not I don't even know what that is. I'm not doing <laughs> <laughs> Should we make a rule of no harmony questions? Just for the crack of well, like, nah, do you want to go there? No, we might get into little bits of that if the conversation goes oh. that way. But that's not really why we're here, the Corey Brothers Harmony Podcast. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> What's the third mode of the melodic minor? <laughs> right then, well, we will see you all on the next episode. We're going to feature our mate Steve Parry, a guest. Probably a longer episode because we won't be able to stop talking and laughing about stuff we've done. Uh so thanks for joining us thanks for listening it's been um, good fun it's been good fun it's been a bit nervous but this is our first one and you get the idea of how it'll flow and what we'll talk about and um, we'll see you on the next one see you later take care take care see ya bye